Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is industry legend Ron Carson on what it really takes to build a $20 billion enterprise. It's a conversation with the CEO and founder of the Carson Group. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or are simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. It's hard to believe that the founder and CEO of a nearly $20 billion enterprise got his start in life as the son of hardworking farmers in Nebraska who had trouble making ends meet. So much so that they eventually lost the family's livelihood. Yet it was an experience that informs him to this day a story of caution and perseverance. Because instead of being a victim of circumstance, Ron pressed forward with an intent of finding a job that had the greatest potential. And the rest would be an amazing story that he shares with us today. In this episode, Ron walks us through his auspicious beginnings to illustrate that with the right focus, direction, and mindset, anyone can achieve the incredible success he has. Ron talks about his start in the wealth management world, an idea that he cultivated in his dorm room in 1983. His early experience with Private Ledger, the predecessor to LPL, and how that became what the Carson Group is today, the retail RIA Carson Wealth. Carson Coaching, which has coached tens of thousands of advisors, and Carson Partners, the turnkey partnership program that allows advisors to access and plug into their model. Plus, Ron shares the single most impactful actions he took along the way to go from zero to nearly $20 billion and much more. Ron's a best-selling author, a go-to for the industry media, and a true legend in the wealth management world with accolades streaming from Barron's and the like. And he's a really interesting guy who shares my love of meditation. I'm excited to have him on the show, so let's get to it. Ron, I am honored and thrilled to have you join me today. It's great to be here, Mindy. Thank you. All right. We just talked offline that we probably have three hours worth of information and questions to talk about and want to squeeze it into an hour. So let's jump right into it. You are one of the most celebrated and well-known CEOs in the wealth management space. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Mindy, I was born in Ohio and moved to Nebraska when I was nine years old. My dad was in the Air Force, came back, took over the family farm, and pretty much thought I was going to be a farmer my entire life. And then uh, when I was 17 in 1982, interest rates were 21.5%. And like a lot of farmers, my parents went broke. I had to find something else to do. 
and I was reading a Money Magazine article, and it said top 10 professions of the future, right towards the top of the list was become a CFP. And I thought, you know what? That sounds awesome because, you know, I had an interest in money. I had a little bit, I had little odds and in businesses as a kid, like a concession stand, a paper route, a lot of popcorn business, a little greeting card business. I'm an actual auctioneer. So I go around all, all people stuff out of their house, auction it off to the community. The whole thing, one man's junk is another man's treasure is so true. And a footnote to that story, which I always love to share, because I find you talk about the butterfly effect. My wife and I, Jeannie, loved to go to Napa Valley. And for years, we would go to the Napa Valley wine auction. Recent casualty of COVID, though. But we were at a pre-party, and this lady from San Francisco says, you're from Nebraska. Tell me, what do you do? And I told her my brief story. She got the craziest, weirdest look on her face and said, I was at Money Magazine at that time, and I wrote that article. It was just like a wow, wow moment. But, you know, you go through life and think, you know, I'll come one little thing, you know, put you on a total different trajectory than what you thought. And I went down to Nebraska, I actually was recruited to play football, was injured my first year and actually started this business right out of my dorm room. My um, then girlfriend today, wife, Jeannie, would sit there and listen to me for hours, you know, call out of the phone book. And I could relate to farmers and at least they would let me in. I could talk weather, equipment, grains, but I was a totally unconscious and competent. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was trying to learn it. But our profession then was very expensive for people to do business. I mean, the maximum loads in those days were up to 20. People think it was eight and a half percent. It's actually 20 percent. You could do a contractual plan and mutual fund companies didn't even put their values on the statement. You had to know to take the share price and the number of shares because it was a period where the market had been through a really rough patch. Plus, if you paid some pretty big loads going in. So sometimes I was bare of bad news to farmers on what their actual things were worth. And then I read shortly within that time period to just a lot of books about the profession. And there were more celebration about how much money you could make off of people and make off trades versus really being client centered. But that set me on a journey. I mean, I'll give you the highlights when we come back and talk about it. But I, wrote, I was with LPL, well, actually PL, Private Ledger, before they were LPL. Then Todd Robinson acquired LPL. And it was, even in those days, Private Ledger was primarily doing direct participation. The reason they were of interest to me, they had a thing called a 503 certificate in Nebraska, which was a, basically an unsecured CD. But then in 1994, we were in a conference in Hawaii, and there was literally 19 of us at the whole conference. That gives you some perspective. Uh, Todd talked about bringing out SAM, the advisory platform. And I was so excited. I remember going back to the room and telling my wife, it's like, we're bringing out a program where I truly get to sit on the same side of the table as the client. Because in the past, I always felt funny. If I was making a recommendation to someone to sell or buy something, there was always a transaction charge. You know, it's how we got compensated. It just felt there wasn't a true alignment of interest. But I was the minority in that room. I remember most of the advisors said, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. No one wants to know what they're really paying. <laughs> so I was early on really in jumping on the advisory bandwagon. Yeah. So it's extraordinary. And today, that little idea you had in your dorm room in 1983 morphed into what is an $18 billion firm. So I guess my first question, in your wildest dreams, 
Did you think that Carson Group would become an $18 billion firm? No, well, we just hit 19.5. So we really have a great chance, depends on what the markets do, right? But probably exceeding 20 billion. Not in my wildest dreams, Mindy. But what I have learned is that if you really start with what's in the clients, I know we all say it, but if you really think, and we, I just came out of a two-hour meeting with my board, it's like if a lot of questions, a lot of opportunities for next year for us. Is this in the client's best interest? And if you really always ask that question first and you start with that, you can build any kind of anything you want because people are starving for an advocate. They're starving to trust people. And I say trust, I don't mean trust that, hey, you're going to steal your money, but they're starving for trust in that. Are you doing the things behind the scenes proactively? Like our physicians, we hope that they're going to school and they're learning and they're calling us in proactively to do the physicals and to be out ahead of, of our health. And that's really what the market wants today more than ever is a true advocate and someone who are thinking about the things they're not thinking about, getting out ahead of the things they're not thinking about and having the being nimble enough to take action when a true opportunity presents itself, whether it's a planning, market related, tax, legal, having a team that can actually take that and take action on behalf of the client. Yeah, I think that that's great advice because a lot of our listeners are either prospective breakaways, meaning people that are not yet independent but thinking about it, and many of them equally are business owners of independent firms that are obviously much smaller than Carson Group. And your perspective on what it takes to be successful, I think is incredibly helpful. But for those that are not familiar, what is the value proposition of Carson Group? I know you have three different business lines, so maybe you can just take two minutes and share with us what they are and what the value proposition of each is. Okay, let me just start with the beginning. So today we have a retail RIA, which was what was started in 1983. We describe that as a seamless proactive service model. You know, some clients we handle everything for, some we handle just the parts of it, but it's single data entry, multi-data use, single source of truth data warehouse. I mean, it's where we have evolved and we're growing really fast organically because of that. And then in 1993, because of the success I'd had on the retail side, and if you've not been to Nebraska, a lot of people come here and they're shocked. Wow, you have trees and you have hills and it's not what I thought it would be. I think some people imagine we were you know, little house in the prairie with no electricity and no paved roads. So they were like, how on earth are you doing this in the middle of nowhere? And I started my coaching program in 1993. We have coached tens of thousands of financial advisors. You know, today we have, I think we're we're by far the largest financial services coaching organization out there. And then in 2000, I really started thinking about this in 2009, about even at my size, which I was a fairly large independent at that point, looking at the change and everything coming at me. And it's like, if I'm feeling this overwhelmed, call it a $2 billion firm, then I can only imagine what a lot of my coaching clients are feeling. Even though we talk to them about it, what's really deep in their mind. It's like, what if I could create a partnership, a way that people could join, have flexibility, retain equity or not, give ultimate flexibility, but to plug into that seamless practice service model, solve for all the technology, and at the same time, continue to evolve it. I use the Amazon experience. We all use Amazon. 
you know, the experience we're having today is far superior than the one we had when we first started with Amazon, but they continue to switch out technologies, make the experience better without us having to even think about it. And that's what I created. Those are the three business lines, the retail, the coaching, and then Carson Partners, where people can be acquired by us, or they can just affiliate, retain their brand, retain all their equity, and just plug into our technology and our service offering. Thank you for sharing that, Ron. That's helpful. And we'll come back to a lot of that in terms of you know what each stands for in just a bit. But one of the things that probably everyone in the industry, every advisor certainly would love to know from someone who has built such a successful organization that's rooted in all the right things. What do you think were the single biggest actions or the single most impactful actions you took along the way to get from zero to what is 18 and a half billion, soon to be 20 billion? Yeah, it depends on when you ask the question, Mindy. One of the things we teach with our coaching program is S-curve explosions. You'll go along and all of a sudden you'll retain gather information and you'll have a huge growth curve and then you'll level out and either you're leveling out to start a decline or you're preparing for the next S curve. So I've gone back and looked at my life and go, there's a seven or eight of these just moments where I had an aha moment and I can give you a few of them. Like when I was first starting off, I had no value proposition. I could connect with people I came up with this idea that I coined in my first book, Testing in the Trenches, Love Affair Marketing. You know, how do you make people feel so good about what we do for them? They want to reciprocate over and over again. And I remember just doing crazy things and learning. I had a questionnaire I would fill out when I was doing paperwork. Because keep in mind, it was just me. I didn't even have an assistant when I first started. You know, what's your favorite restaurant? What's your dog's name? What's your kid's name? What's your favorite author? And It was very labor intensive, but I was always dripping, doing something little for my clients and I would stay on top of mind. And they, oh my gosh, did they help me grow my business? And then that led to, so I had a tremendous S-curve explosion through Love Affair Marketing. And then I was overwhelmed with, okay, I've got this client. They're this size, this many years. What do I do for them? What's my budget? Then I I met Michael Gerber, who wrote the E-Myth. I actually was invited to spend a day with him with three or four other people in Aspen and for an entire day. And I I walked out of that on cloud nine going repeatable processes. And Michael Gerber's basic premise of that book. Have you read that book? I did. I love it. And what he says in the book is with systems and repeatable processes, you can take ordinary people and deliver extraordinary results. And without processes, you need extraordinary people to get ordinary results. And this is where I think it's different financial services. I think if you're flipping hamburgers at McDonald's, that might be true. But in financial services, you need extraordinary people, which will lead to one of my next S-curve explosions. And But without systems, you take extraordinary people and you only get ordinary results. But you need to start with extraordinary people because we are people business. You have to think on your feet. So repeatable process systemization today, our organization is run around processes that we push out to all of our partners. And that way, if we need to make an adjustment and a change, we can make it, we can make it system wide. And then the third piece, which I I should have started with this is desire, burning desire in the gut. I've often said 
if I could measure how much fuel you've got in your gut, I could tell you not how successful you're going to be, but how successful you could be because you've got to have that fuel. I think it's crazy. We live in a world that we expect people to do something they don't love for almost all of their life to then maybe do something they love for a little itty bitty portion of their life. And by the way, because they've done all this other they don't know how to enjoy life. So we created within our coaching program as a result of my success, blueprinting, live your life by design, not by default. And by the way, if you're in financial services, just because you can make good money, but you don't love it, get out, find what your jam is. Find what my today, you know, I'm 57 years old. I don't have to work. It's not about money. It's about impact. When I get out of bed in the morning, I am so excited for the day. Last night we had some friends over sitting around the fire pit. They're like, why do you work so hard? Because I don't work and I have a, I don't feel like I've worked in 20 years because I don't believe in the distinction between the two. I believe in just having harmony in your life. And back to if you find harmony with your activities being totally congruent with what the end looks like for you. You know, you want to get to the end of your life and I'm glad I did, not that I wish I had, but those three items alone propelled Carson to that $3 billion mark before we even, you know, just, if you just took those three things and then passion prospecting was added later when I came, I was doing seminars and workshops and I, I have this like epiphany, like I love to do certain things and the clients that love it, they know people that love it, that know people that love it, that know people that love it. I love to hike. I'm an aviator. I like to bird hunt. I like to fish. And so now I've created we have a full-time captain in Yacht and Marco Island. So we take prospects and centers of influence out all the time. We've got a retreat just north of Omaha, which gets used pretty much every day of the year. By, we're actually expanding the capacity up there because when you get these centers of influence or large prospects or any prospects and you spend that kind of time or even with your internal stakeholders, we don't use the term staff or employees. We use internal stakeholders to actually spend that kind of time and relationship building that was a major growth. So there's four S-curve explosions. And then the fifth one is a self-made billionaire here in Omaha I said, Ron, because I said, hey, what's the secret? I used to do a series called Habits of Top Achievers. And I would ask them all of them the same question. If you could pick one thing, kind of like you asked me, that most led to your success, what was it? And this particular client said, I found the best people I could and I got the hell out of their way. Mm -hmm. It's easy to say it's hard to do because we've built our businesses from the ground up. And, you know, we lament, especially I think my generation about they just don't do it the way we did it. Well, that's a good thing. You know, embrace the difference, but really surround yourself with, with great people. And I'll, and I'll steal a Jeff Bezos quote. A lot of times I disagree with my team, but I can disagree and commit. And I hope I'm wrong because that just means I made a really good decision in bringing that person into the organization. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you a question. That's incredibly generous of you to share that and great information. You said you don't feel like you've worked a day in the last 20 years. Funny, I feel that way too. I love what I do. And I think that's an unusual gift. But I also know you work pretty hard. I think you're a guy who gets up really early in the morning. Tell us a little bit about that, what a typical day looks like for you. Typically, I get up between four and five in the morning. I meditate and I haven't always been big into meditation. And I can't imagine like my day, there's times when 
I have grandchildren, so I had our grandson spend the night with us last night. And so he's up and he's got lots of needs in the morning. And so I wasn't able to meditate, but I meditate, then I work out. And then I'm normally in the office for our first meeting around 8, 8.30. And then I have meetings, do live life uh, until four to six o'clock at night. But I also do that. I travel. Jeannie and I, I talked about that Michael Gerber meeting in Aspen. So I fell in love with Aspen going there, clear back end of the day when I couldn't afford to, to be there. But now we spend time in Aspen. We spend time in Arizona. We spend in Omaha. It's the other thing we did as a couple, and I would challenge people out there today, is you made a comment, Mindy, that said, you know, we're really blessed that we can do it. I think most people can do it if they, if they can't do it overnight, but they can start on a journey to get themselves in a position where they love what they do. And I've told all three of my kids, you do what you love, enough money will show up. Don't chase the money, chase the love. Agree with you. And also Jeannie and I scripted out what we were the perfect year. If money, this is back when we didn't have the money, is if money were no object, where would we live and when would we live there? And what would our life look like? And we wrote that out. We we're very detailed around it. And we're living that. We've been living that for about the last decade which makes it easier to love what you're doing. Yeah, amazing. And thank you for sharing that. I will tell you without getting too woo-woo on this, that I am a daily meditator as well for probably the past six or seven years. It has changed my world. It was game-changing. It was profound. I am infinitely more present, creative, joyful, successful, better mother, better wife, better boss, better everything as a result of it. So take that for what it's worth. And I, I'm sure and, you'd agree. And Mindy, you can't get woo-woo enough for me. <laughs> I mean, as I've gotten older, I've been more open-minded. There's a great book out there. I don't know if you've heard Becoming Supernatural by Joseph Dispenza. Phenomenal. You know, I went to high school with Joseph Dispenza. No way. I did. I grew up with him. Yep. That's cool. I yeah. think his stuff is amazing. And there's a lot of, I call it woo-woo stuff, books, meditations that I do, retreats that I do. But I think that's also led to my business success. The more genuine, authentic self I've been able to be, the more zen I've become. And, you know, I was a hard-charging drill sergeant, more out of fear, you know, and I think it's healthy. We're actually having a huge mental health thing tomorrow. I grew up in a household where... My dad was a terrible alcoholic. My mother was manic depressive and going broke when I was in high school. I've run from scarcity for so much of my early years of my life. And because I was scared of having that happen to me, I was just not that happy of a person. And so I demanded way unrealistic things at unrealistic expectations. But the more I got into the self-discovery, I tell I tell our stakeholders this today, and I, and I love coaching people. You got to be selfish to be selfless. Because if, you if your personal cup is not running over, you don't have anything extra to give to others. And you do that, and you get into the woo, the zen. But whatever it is that feeds your soul, you will find more business success from that. Scott Ford and I wrote a book called Sustainable Edge. And our whole premise was balance leads to growth, growth leads to balance. It's a positive, virtuous cycle. Not only can, you can have it all, you should have it all. Because the more you have it all, the more impactful, the more results you'll get out of the life you want. 
I agree with you 100%. It's probably the biggest lesson I've learned in the last decade is the more authentic I am, the more successful I am. And hopefully people listening can take that as well. back to the business for just a minute, as much as okay. I find part of the conversation fascinating. You talk about getting from zero to 2 billion, from 2 billion to 3 billion, and that in and of itself is extraordinary, this S-curve growth. But to get to eight and a half billion, I'm wondering how much, and soon to be 20 billion, how much inorganic growth or M&A and acquisitions played in it. So talk to us a little bit about how you became the prolific acquirers you are today and how, to what extent, inorganic growth fueled your growth. I think that's a huge misconception. Most of our growth has not been through acquisition. And we're just like in the last year, matter of fact, we're going to announce a deal. Well, I don't know if we'll announce it. We'll, we'll sign a deal here very soon. And it'll be one of the largest acquisitions we've done to date. And we really just doubled down. We now have an M&A group. And that's as of the last three months, we have eight people in our M&A group. And that was really driven a large part by Bain coming in saying, you guys are missing a huge opportunity. I mean, you, it's incredible you've gotten to the size you have without doing a bunch of deals. Our organic growth rate has been really good. That's one of the things that attracted us to Bain. And really everybody we were in contact with, they couldn't believe our organic numbers. I mean, we're winning today like we've never won before, Mindy. And, and it really is as a result of all the infrastructure, the data warehousing, the tech configuration that we put in place over the last several years that allowed that. The great news about M&A there's a lot of people do M&A first, and then they try to catch the infrastructure up later. We did it just the opposite. We did all the infrastructure. So now we got, we got incredible scale. Um, we could go to $100 billion in size, and it's very, very doable you know, with, with the uh, ecosystem that we've, that we've built. So why should an independent business owner think about selling to Carson? Well, you don't have to sell. You mean sell because I, I want to make clear you don't have to sell to be part of Carson, right? You can just you can plug in to use our technology. But if you wanted to sell, and if you wanted to uh, sell, I want to answer the question a little differently. Is I can tell you that we're very careful about the community of advisors. One of our core values is giving it our all, even when it's not convenient for us to do so. And that is not only true for my internal stakeholders, but it's also true for my partners. We actually have training going on today and this morning in our fitness center, I saw a bunch of our partners and just seeing the camaraderie and the things that they're doing for each other is incredible. So if you want to be part of a community that gives it their all for each other outside of, you know, the core of what we do, and then you want to know that the value proposition you're going to offer today is going to be even better six months from now. And six months from then is we're committed to continuous improvement. And finally, we're not selling, we're not building this to sell it. We've publicly stated we're going to be a hundred year firm. I have control of the organization. This isn't about building it to sell off. This is about maximum impact. We can have local impact, national impact, global impact. And the people we're attracting are also very focused on the kind of impact we can have. But we start with the American retail client, I think, deserves better than what they've gotten in terms of 
not only the, the planning, but the proactiveness and really thinking, as I opened with this, thinking about things they're not thinking about. And advisors wearing too many hats today. I wore too many hats. I was doing investments and trading and research and technology, HR. And if you take any one of those, it's a full, I mean, to be really good at it, you got to devote your life to it. So if you want to have an environment where you've got subject matter experts that I'll put up against anybody in the country for as good, whether it's attorney or legal or tax, tech, HR, we're the place. And you're not going to wake up one day and be owned by Goldman Sachs. I can promise you that. So let me, there's so many questions going in my head. So one of them is, that's the why Carson. But how should an independent business owner, so somebody that, let's say, has a $500 million firm, which is certainly a good-sized firm, growing fairly well, has a great quality of life. Let's say the principal is early 50s, let's say. So probably has another 10 to 15 years, year runway or so. How should that principal think about the right time to either sell to a firm like Carson to join a firm like Carson, to be able to leverage its infrastructure and everything else that comes with it, or obviously to go it alone and continue alone and then sell on the open market at the end of the day? I think it has almost nothing to do with age and everything to do with future competition. I'm sure you see a lot of the technology that is percolating beneath the surface. And a lot of advisors, that old saying is, um, I don't have to outrun, if the bear is chasing us, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just got to outrun you. I think a lot of advisors look at each other going, oh, I'm as good as them, and I'm as good as them, and I'm almost as good as them, so I'm really safe. And that's what Blockbuster thought when Netflix, right? They're comparing to the other you know, brick and mortar competitors. We're going to have, in order to compete in the future, you're going to have to be delivering something that is delivered at even a higher level than we're delivering it today in being using AI to, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but just give me a minute to last year, we monitored 39 million of our clients' actions and behavior through our data warehouse. We know when they logged in, what was going on in the market, what's going on in their life. You can start to build profiles to help really anticipate a client's needs when you have that kind of power. And then you lay that besides the data lake, there's a lot of the external things and you can pull information from that. You're going to have Amazon, Apple, Google, you name it, and companies we haven't even heard of, they're going to be delivering, we call it single pane of glass experience, where it's really simple to use. Whoever removes the most friction and has the biggest easy button is going to ultimately win. Amazon's clear winner in retail. I don't think anybody's going to argue that. Streaming services, there's a handful of them out there. Google's a clear winner in search. It, it happened in banking. It happened in farming. It happened in um, tax and accounting. The market's not going to pay for 50,000 compliance departments, 50,000 trading departments. It's just so inefficient. And people think, well, I'm protected because I've got this or I've got that. That may be true for a little while, but the next, the next generation, even though the baby boomers have most of wealth, we're seeing influence by the young professionals as heavier than ever, ever. And they're open to looking at everything. And it's going to come down to make it easy, remove friction and demonstrate to me that you're adding value beyond a doubt. And I'll give a great example on planning. We have a thing called life's moments. 
as advisors, we do a great job and we create all kinds of value through the planning process. But at the end of the day, the client forgets and the advisor forgets all the great things they've done. So we've built into our experience a timeline of all the key decisions we helped a client make so they never forget. We always remind them, but these are table stakes or being able to flag a client on when they're about ready to change an objective that's not in their best interest because of their behaviors when they're going on the market looking at it. So back to that question is you really want to look to are you big enough to own and integrate the technologies to give an Amazon-like experience for the future? And not only you, but the partners you're connected with, because you can only go as fast. You're only as strong as your weakest link. You can only go as fast as your slowest technology, because that ends up really holding things up. And so the real question is, if you're smaller, and I'm going to say under under a billion in size, and you don't know whether you want to partner or sell, I would sell today because valuations are super, I don't know if they're not, if they could go higher, who knows? I didn't think they would get this high. Sell today or partner with a battleship, with somebody that you feel you've got a connection, your cultural fit with. And here's what we tell people, Mindy, when you join, I don't care what your effort and what your growth rate is, we'll double it. We will double your growth rate and, but here's the most important piece is not the growth rate, the fun factor. How much fun as an advisor are you having, truly having today? Are you ever dreading going in and having meetings? So we measure this. Our average partner, when they're with us a year, we do a survey as what well, their satisfaction, what their profession was then versus a year later. Keep in mind, they just gone through massive, massive transformation. It should be lower it's nearly 40% higher than when they started. It's all about getting rid of the stuff you're not good at, you don't enjoy, and there's no way you can keep on top of all of it. So let me ask you a couple of questions about that. I know that one of the things you mentioned that advisors wear too many hats, and I know you're pretty, you've got a strong point of view about advisors giving up the investment management end of things. And that One of the requirements, I think, of joining the Carson, being acquired by Carson, certainly, um, and I think also for joining under the 1099 option, is that the advisors outsource investment management to Carson. Talk to us a little bit about that in terms of why you believe that is the case and how that translates. You said they're going to double growth. So how are they going to double growth? Okay. How are they going to double their growth rate is they're going to get rid of, first of all, advisor is PM. And I can relate to what advisors are running through their minds because I was that advisor is I used to be the secret sauce. I remember one of my clients telling me early on, he goes, Ron, I'm coming to you because I think you're the next Warren Buffett. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not the next Warren Buffett. But you know, if, that's, if you have that kind of confidence in me, that's great. Imagine the world where an advisor, many of them that are, portfolio managers, they have no formal training. And let's just say you do have a CFA. Now do you have the time? Because now you're going to manage the assets. And this is an important distinction here too, Mindy. We're not saying outsource. When a partner joins us, they're part of our RIA. So they're not outsourcing anything. Our 56 people in investments and research become theirs. So the message to their client isn't, I'm not doing this anymore but I've been invited to join a Barron's Hall of Fame team. And now I have their research group because all of the options within our ecosystem 
come as a result of our partner saying, I need this, I need that. And then we'll, we don't want to give people 50 different flavors or shades of chocolate. And then you go the next step. I love it when we compete against an advisor who says, I'm a one-man band. I customize all the portfolios. Now I ask my client, how much time do you think they really spend diving in and getting to know exactly what they own? And what are the other demands? And then some advisors say, I customize all my my portfolios for my clients. I actually had this conversation a couple months ago. I said, well, how many clients do you have? About 150. And we do individual equities. And you've customized every single, every single one. And I'm like, man, I mean, I know how much energy and effort goes into it. Advisors aren't very good at it. If they really looked and measured themselves as to how they perform. Now, true, you can have a period of dramatic outperformance, but over a long period of time, believe me, I was one of those advisors that thought I had a secret sauce for a while. And I want advisors to become librarians, not libraries. When you're trying to retain all that information, it weighs you down. It's really powerful when you can say, I don't know the answer, but I'll get my research team, I'll get my legal team, I'll get my tax team to get an answer for you. But I think it's important. People don't want to pay someone outsource. The messaging is, because which is true, and they go to their website, they see our entire investment research planning. All of our professionals are now on their team. And it's not an outsource, it's directly. All the information is connected. All the information lives in that single source of truth, the data warehouse, for the benefit of the advisors that join. Versus hiring a third-party manager, no one really wants to do that. It's clunky. Reporting's not great. Sometimes you can talk to them, sometimes you can't. That's not what we're talking about here. And my theory was right. Because many advisors had grown to three, two, five hundred million in assets, been there for a decade because they were dealing with, even if it was just a small percentage of their time and all these different areas of their company, they had very little time for new client acquisition. Once we removed all that from them and we gave them back their day, that's why their organic growth rate accelerates. And that's why they're having more fun because they're only doing the things that they truly love to do. So- what other factors beside giving up investment management, freeing them to do other things, what else contributes to doubling their growth? I mean, that's a big statement that they will double growth. So what else? Yeah. So we're not supporting 10 different CRMs. We're not supporting all these different applications. You, everything is converted into a single system. Our advanced planning team, you talk about what, where we're winning. We, I had an advisor last week. He brought in $60 million of new assets. He's only been with us now for about two years. His previous largest week he had ever had was like five and a half, six million dollars. So they're winning at another level because they can say, I'm going to bring my Omaha group. A lot of the smaller, simpler planning happens at the local level. And we love to say we at Carson, we all talk the same language, but many of us have different accents. And so there's a local nuance on how to do stuff. But we want to help an advisor not have to think about all of those things and let them just focus on centers of influence, taking care of their existing clients and acquiring new clients. And virtually everything else can be handled by our team from technology to planning to trading to asset management, HR issues, you name it. It's a tax on the advisor's productivity. So, so uh I think that there are many advisors that would agree with that, but an equal number of many that would say, I don't want to give up control. I like the fact that I get to choose and have agency over the CRM I use and 
um, every other aspect of my organization. And is it as simple as to say that those people are just not a fit for Carson? How would you respond to that? I would say that that's exactly it, Mindy. We know the recipe that works. And if you're going to spend your time deciding on which CRM to use and which one to evaluate, that's penny time. You're taking dollar time for penny tasks. It's not going to move the needle. I mean, really, if it's Salesforce, financial services, cloud, or act, is that going to make the big difference in your, no, not at all. Um, uh, but you're going to spend a lot of time with updates and vendors call on you. And should we make a switch? And this isn't being supported. Or you have what Orange did last December about this time of the year. Oh, by the way, we're shutting down on 1231. Go figure out another solution. How disruptive is that? So yeah, for those that want to make those kinds of get in the weeds and be that granular with their business, they're not a good fit for us. Let me ask you another question. Your 1099 model is what we would describe as supported independence. And that is probably the fastest growing and most popular version of independence. So an advisor who is independent minded, and I think I'm talking more now about somebody who's currently an advisor working as an employee for a traditional firm that's thinking about going independent. The choice for supported independence to be able to rely on an established infrastructure or a firm to get them from here to there, to know what they don't know, to support a lot of the middle office and back office tasks is incredibly popular. What would you say? I mean, there are many mega firms in the supported independent space that could say a lot of what you say. We have scale and we have infrastructure and we have capacity that you may not have. What do you think the single biggest or the top two or three biggest differentiators are about Carson's version of supported independence versus the competition? So Mindy, you're right. If you put 10 of us up there, we're all going to talk about how we do these things and we do them somewhere. And it gets really hard in due diligence to know. And by the way, we think the deeper the due diligence you do, the better off you are. This is a big decision. So really do it right. Do site visits and talk to other people that have been there for a long time. And there's only one, there's to me, this can be, or you can shortcut it. And there's one massive shortcut. And that is this, what's your organic growth rate? And you can verify this with custodians, you know, of giving them permission. They, they, cause they see all the ins and outs, right? And that is the only thing that really matters at the end of the day, because that's what the retail client is saying about your value proposition. It's not what Ron Carson's or my competitors is saying about the value proposition. The number that really should matter is what the retail clients are saying about your value proposition. And listen, there's going to be, I think, Tiburgeon said it, Hurley said it, I think they're right, they said it at least 10 years ago, that there's going to be seven to 10 mega firms out there. And I think that's probably right. It's going to be similar to the banking that we have today. So there's rooms for nuances to do this differently. And I'm not saying we have all the answers, but I am saying we found a formula that is repeatable, that's working really well, that's doubling growth rates and advisors are having more fun than they've ever had in this business, quite frankly. But I'm not saying my competitors aren't aren't seeing the same kind of results, but they're not having the growth, organic growth rate we are, at least according to our custodians that we're all both that. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I appreciate that totally. 
So I want to switch to the topic of taking on an investor because not long ago, you took on powerhouse private equity firm Bain Capital. You mentioned it. So tell us a little bit about that decision to switch out one private equity investor for another and the timing of it. Why then? So I want to go back a little further and tell you why we brought private equity in in the first place. I was at a point where I owned 100% of the firm. I knew that I really wanted to go for it in this space. I had this idea around partnership and that if I could deliver this value proposition, I thought it would be good. And I actually remember talking to Longridge, which was a great partner of ours uh, in New York City, and they bought into the vision. I said, but here's what I need. I don't have an M&A department and I need someone you know, to help us because some of these could have been acquisitions that would have been technology acquisitions. And I knew I didn't know what I was doing in that area. And I needed to professionalize the business. If you go through this process of private equity, you end up knowing your business the best you've probably ever known it because sloppiness and you get all the I's dotted, T's crossed to get everything in total alignment. Now you've got something where I could bring in other equity owners. And I brought in a core group of people that actually bought into Carson at that time. And Longridge, we had a fantastic run with, but quite frankly, we outgrew them. We told uh, Longridge, we weren't looking for capital, we we're looking for capabilities, but that was a, one of my big mistakes too. When they invested a considerable amount of money through our capital raise, and we spent it all because all of the estimates I had seen by consultants on what it was going to cost to build were nowhere close to being right in both time and money. And then with Longridge, we had really outgrown anything they could add. And we were either just going to take them out ourselves, or we were going to bring in another partner. And we did something like 21 fireside chats. And then we narrowed it down to 10. And then we were down to four. And then we narrowed it down to two. And I was very clear, this isn't about capital. This is about capabilities. And I had every one of those firms come and present very specific, actionable ideas on what they would do and what they would advise us to do. We had the two that um, Bain and another one we didn't go with, we were blown away. Like we weren't thinking nearly big enough. We weren't nearly as creative. One great thing about financial services is if you're looking outside of financial services, sees what's going on, which is could be bleeding edge but it's really fast followers. If we're fast followers outside of financial services, that makes us bleeding edge inside of financial services because there's so many things going on that are so slow to really take get traction within financial services. It's like getting next year's newspaper today and Bain blew us away. And we're, we have four major initiatives we're working on today. Um, and I think Bain will, we will see unprecedented growth. And they had never invested in this space before. We're the first wealth management firm they have invested in. They're the third, I believe, third largest private equity firm in the world. And, and so that relationship's off to an amazing start. So let me just point out, they invested in you in July of this year for a staggering valuation of a billion dollars. That in and of itself is extraordinary. I think the second thing that's incredibly extraordinary to me is that a lot of advisors, when they are considering the notion of going independent, they're wondering who the acquirers are. So if I forgo a big check today, a big transition check today, and I build an independent firm, who will the buyers be? The fact that the third largest private equity firm in the world was interested, not just in Carson, but in a sound wealth management space, a sound wealth management firm is extraordinary. And every day we're reading about 
about top private equity firms investing in well-run, scaled financial services firms. So that's extraordinary. So for you, the decision to take on an investor, whether it be Longridge years ago or to switch out and bring in Bain now, was about wanting to grow in a way that you couldn't then, or you couldn't without them. What would you say to that same $500 million firm, the principal of a $500 million firm that's doing good things, it's growing, that's got the choice at that point to either retain control and continue to do what they're doing and doing it well and eventually sell on the open market when they're ready to hang it up, whether they're looking to take on an investor whether they're looking to join a model of supported independence to outsource a lot of the stuff that we just talked about, the middle office and back office stuff, whether it be selling outright to a larger RIA firm now or independent firm now, how would you counsel them to think about those options? Let me go back to what I said earlier, the blueprinting process, because I think so often we try to evaluate stuff in our life that's right in front of us versus going to the end and work backwards. So I'll go back to the blueprinting. I would ask if I were coaching that individual person, I'd say, let's go to the end and what success look like for you personally, with your family and professionally. And based on what their answers were, would inform what kind of action they should take today. And there's lots of different ways to do it, Mindy. I would caution though on private equity Unless you're of a certain size, and I've seen this within our coaching group, unless you're of a certain size, you're not attracting a big A team. You're going to get a B or a C team. And a lot of times they don't know enough about your business to really, so if it's just financial that you're looking for, that's fine. But if you're really looking for know-how, you know, you have to be a certain size to even, even have that option. So I think it's really around, do I partner or I just go it alone? And I think that's going to be a personal decision based on what your best life looks like, based on what's important to you in the future. And how about the decision around setting out to build an enterprise, meaning not just to continue to grow organically your own client base, but the notion of adding recruiting and M&A and really building an enterprise. I mean, not many are going to build $20 billion firms, but even an enterprise that has multiple offices, multiple locations. What would your thinking be or what would your advice be to that? Again, I, I'm making up this mythical 500, yeah. principle of a $500 million firm who's thinking about he's in early innings and thinking about, do I want to stay as a boutique or do I want to build an enterprise? What's your thinking around that? Yeah, I think that people is the hardest piece of that, Mindy. And I, I guess I was a total unconscious competent when I started down this road. I didn't realize how lucky I was being in Omaha, Nebraska. Cost of living is low, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the nation. We have TD, large presence here, Securities America. We have Orion. I mean, if you look at our people, we have a lot of people that have come from those areas. And I would do a real assessment to say, can I attract the people to actually do, regardless of money, getting people to buy? Because people have all kinds of options today. And I think human capital going forward is really going to be the biggest decision you're going to have to make. And we at Carson, we're already, I think we got something like 35 open positions here today. 
And we would rather have nobody in the position than the wrong person in the position. So we could just fill it, but we're really particular about who we put in it. But we're training the next gen. I would say if you can't identify where you're going to bring in your advanced solutions team, your operations, and your partners, and every coaching member we have almost is trying to hire somebody that they can't find. And so what's your strategy going to be for growing your own, because I don't know how else you're going to be able to do it unless you're going to pay insane prices. And does that really attract the kind of culture that you want to have within the organization? So I would do an assessment of, of people. And I've always, my entire life, I've kept a file. As I meet people, if I was super impressed, I would make a note, say, if I ever did something extraordinary, this would be a person I want to have on my team. And when I went and did partners, as I spent months making calls so i really had an accelerated all what i felt was an all-star group to help me pull this together so getting the people right is going to be the biggest challenge and that's where i start with the assessment if you've done the blueprinting and you say this is what i really want to go for now the next step is to take an inventory of who would actually be be part of that because we you certainly can't do it alone you got to have a really really top-notch you know group of stakeholders to pull that off There are probably a million more questions I could ask you, but for the sake of time, I want to ask you where you think the industry is heading. The real question I want to know is, do you think that the independent space will continue to be all the rage? I do. We're early in the first inning. Uh, you know, you and I were talking before this started. I mean, you couldn't be in a better position where you're at. I think you got an amazing decade run and I think it's going to be massive consolidation and there's going to be major players that come into our space that we've never even heard of today. I think it's a matter of time before we have the clients have to pay differently than they've paid. And we, that's a whole other debate. But you know, having to write a check for the fee, if you, all you're doing is asset management, I think that's going to be a harder check to have people write. I think the professional will look a lot different a decade from now than it looks today. And I think there'll be a lot fewer players, but I think we're going to be doing really great work because of technology. And I don't believe technology is going to replace the advisor. Technology is only going to allow the advisor to do our job better because people still, I'm a pilot. Listen, the plane can almost fly itself, but people want to know there's someone sitting up there in the seat because in the case of emergency, the pilot's the only person that can really save the plane. That's a true of the well-defined financial plan. You know, most of the time you don't want to oversteer it um, but advisors need to use technology in order to deliver alpha. And there is an alpha that can be delivered by managing consumer behavior. And it's still going to be a people business. I mean, there's going to be a segment that do it themselves and have digital and a great digital experience. But I'm very bullish on the future of the human advisor. Yeah. But why would an independent advisor be better positioned for the future than an employee-based advisor, given the fact that there are going to be some massive disruptors coming to the space? I don't know that they will be. This comes back to this individual, uh, what's your individual path that you want? You may want to be a W-2 because you don't want to work that hard. And being an independent, being a business owner, you know, you're always on, you're always have things they're, they're, I was having lunch yesterday with another advisor. They got a text right in the middle of lunch at a key, one of their key people quit. Well, if you're W2, you don't have to worry about that so much. Right. And so I think it, it really comes down to what do you want out of your life? I think you'll be successful on either, but I don't care if you're 1099 or W2, make sure you're on a battleship. That's a battleship today. That's committed continuous upgrades and improvement to the value proposition that they're never 
like I always say, we're, we're pleased, but never satisfied. Pleased with what we're at, but we've always got this insatiable appetite to do things at a higher, better level for the benefit of the people we serve. Yeah, I think that that's a very fair distinction. It's not just that any independent is going to be better or well-prepared enough. It's got to be independent with the right infrastructure. And that choice about who to align with um, has everything to do with how does the advisor want to live his or her business life and is the choice of who they partner with the right choice as well. Yes, very well said. Good. Ron, this was just not only personally delightful, but incredibly informative. I mean, I could have gone on all day. So I hope you will come back again because we'll have conversations about how advisors should be charging. And you have lots of wonderful, wonderful wisdom based on real success that would anybody would find helpful. So thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me, Mindy. And you're amazing. Like, you know, you've done so many great things to our wonderful profession. And so just thank you for showing up every day. Thank you. What a nice compliment. Thanks so much. The incredible journey that Ron shared is one that he feels anyone can accomplish, provided you have the focus and determination to create something extraordinary plus the ability to design repeatable processes and deliver exceptional client experiences. But I think what's most compelling is Ron's dedication to living his best business life, one that gives as much as it receives. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached by cell at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave the show a star rating and a review. That will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.